Well, good morning. My name is Lewis Erickson. Um, speaking today, I don't normally speak. Darren does a great job, and, and we're on the fifth or sixth week here, and, and I always enjoy hearing him. I don't get to hear him this morning. Unfortunately, you guys get to hear me, but anyway, uh, welcome, and I'm, hopefully you're enjoying this series. Uh, this has been great. I've learned a lot from it, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think there'll be a lot in store for today. So, um, so before we get into it, would you join me in a word of prayer real quick? Um, Father, uh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for it was your idea to send Jesus. It wasn't something that we concocted or we made up, but you sent all this, and then you told us about it through Jesus and the disciples. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your salvation. And Lord, um, you've given us your word. There's power in your word as well. It can change our lives. And that's what we want to have happen today, Father. We want our lives to be changed. Um, Lord, and you've chosen to use broken vessels to, do, to speak your word. Lord, you know me, how I can often say the wrong thing or say it not the right way or say it at the wrong time. Um, you're not that way, though. You always say the right thing at the right time, the right way. Father, I pray that it would be you that speaks today through your word, through your Holy Spirit. And as we've learned in the Revelation that uh, you walk amongst the midst of the candlesticks, the church, that you're walking here in our midst today, too. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. That's something that's said that you'll, you'll, you'll just uh, bring it home to us and help it to change our lives. Lord, we, we need you. We need you, and we thank you, Lord, that you've promised to be here where two or three are gathered together. So, Lord, we thank you. We welcome you. Thank you, Lord. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so right now we are in the first, uh, second and third chapter of Revelation. We're talking about the seven churches. And um, if you... Uh, as you can see on this map here in a second, um, there's seven churches that we're talking to, and they were kind of on a mail route. And the books are written, um, starting at Ephesus and going on around, as though you're on a mail route. And uh, these were part of uh, what's today called Turkey. And the letters in Revelation are the, in that order. So we start with Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatris, Thyatris, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But today's message is going to be speaking of the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. Now, why would we take those two out of the order that they're in in the Bible? Well, there's a good reason for it. It's because the content of what Jesus said to these particular two churches is very similar. And it's unlike what was said to the other five. What was said to the other five was while there was encouragement, there was also a rebuke. But to these two churches, there is no rebuke. Jesus just encourages them and tells them that they're doing great and to keep it up. So for today's message, I want to remind us that while these letters in Revelation were addressed to these specific churches, Jesus intended that we all listen to these letters as though they were written to us. 
Because he ends each letter with the words saying, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So if you've got two ears, this message that was written to Smyrna in Philadelphia is for you as well. And as we've learned in previous weeks, the word hear, it means not just to hear with our ears, but it means obey, listen and obey. Now, obeying can be scary, but it's easier when you trust the person that you're being asked to obey. And since we put our trust in the Jesus, we can obey him much easier than, uh, say, um, someone else that wants you to obey them like our government. Well, we don't always trust our government because it's led by people. So we may be hesitant to obey. We want to, okay, let's check it out. But with Christ, we don't have to do that. Now, Darren has mentioned several good books that he's read in preparing his message on Revelation. And, and um, one that we and Darren shared with me in particular has been an excellent resource for me as I've done this. And I'd like to share it with you too. Because so, I've heard some of you say, hey, I want to go deeper into what we're talking about. So this is an excellent book. It's uh, called... Uh, Beale's Revelation, a shorter commentary. Uh, shorter, it's 550-some pages, but um, uh, anyway, it, it's an excellent book, and so I'd encourage it if you're wanting to get deeper to look into that. And if you were to read a reference book or a commentary like this on Revelation, uh, it'd give you some background information, which we're going to talk about right now before we get into um, the text here. So this area of the seven churches um, was originally not part of the Roman Empire. It was conquered by the Romans. And so uh, these regional governments in this area, they were aware that they were not natural Romans and that they could be replaced at any time. So they really strived to please Rome because they didn't want to be replaced. And uh, another thing about this area is that there were a lot of Jews throughout here. They had been exiled up into this area. And another thing that's very important for us to know is that emperor worship had now become required in the Roman Empire to actually worship the Caesar, to call him Lord and Savior. And cities in this area, those seven cities that the letters are written to, actually wanted to host a temple to Caesar. Uh, they wanted to become a chosen temple location. So they would compete like our cities do today for the Olympics or the World Cup. And um, while emperor worship was required everywhere, the Jews were the only religion that was exempted from worshiping Caesar. So if you were Jewish, you didn't have to worship Caesar. You were encouraged to, but you didn't have to. But of course, this uh, caused the Jews to be looked down upon. And then you add to that that the Jews revolted in the years, uh, the decade of the 60s, AD 60. And then they, there was a siege of Jerusalem, a temple was destroyed. That didn't make you, if you were Jewish, that didn't make you really popular with Romans. You were looked down upon. So the Jews already felt this pressure in, in the Roman society that they were looked down upon. Now this Christian sect comes up in the middle of them and they start making things uncomfortable for the Jewish people because they, 
were saying, hey, Jesus is the only Lord and Savior. And so it's like, uh-oh, I don't want to be associated with them. So, um, and then you add to that that the Jews were already angry at these Christians because they didn't follow the Jewish law. And then they also claimed that their leaders actually crucified the Messiah. So Jews were not very happy with Christians. And now the Christians threatened this peaceful arrangement that they had with Rome by declaring that Jesus was the only Lord. And that actually doing that was saying that was treasonous. So as a result, the Jews didn't want the Romans to think they were Christians or even closer, even somewhat related to the Christians. So the Christians were excommunicated. They were pushed out of the synagogues. And even the Jews would betray. Hey, I want to be, look like a friend of the Rome, so I want to betray these Christians. I'm going to rat on them and even lie to get them in trouble with the Romans. So they were pushed out of the doors of their synagogues, and the doors were shut behind them, if not literally, figuratively, but many cases literally as well. Their names were removed from the rolls and walls of the synagogue, and they lost all citizenship in their Jewish society there. Their synagogue was more than a religious building in those days. That was where you made connections to, to sell your, your wares or, or to exercise your trade and to your business connections and people, your friends, your family. They were all centered around the synagogue if you were Jewish. And if you now become Christian, it was still, it was still that way. So losing the synagogue and being pushed out of it mean you lost your friends, you lost your job connections, um, social life. Poverty would have been the result of being cut off like this. They had been isolated from their former community. They were now, they would be fewer in number. They would have been suffering poverty. They wouldn't have been viewed as powerful or strong anymore. And on the contrary, they would have been viewed and seen themselves as poor, weak, non-influential to the society. So with all that context in mind, now I'm going to ask Megan to come on up and to read our text today. So would you please stand as a way of honoring the Lord as we read and hear the text for today. To the church in Smyrna, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. In the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what I am about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the church in Philadelphia, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who says that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Megan. I hope having that background made that text mean a little bit more. And as we go through it, hopefully it will mean more as well. Because there is so much here. Uh, in fact, that's one of the things I've struggled with. How much do I put in this message or so much? Um, well, first, let's look at the similarities of these two churches. Jesus says to both of them, in fact, he says to all of them, I know your works. He knows their works because he sees everything. Remember what Jesus said uh, in the Gospels, there is nothing hidden that won't be revealed, and there is nothing secret that won't become known. He meant it, and he has given us a mental picture of himself in the midst of the churches in the first chapter of Revelation where he walks among the candlesticks. And he walks in our midst today too. He said he also knew other things about these two churches. For Smyrna, the first one, he said that he knew their afflictions and poverty. But he adds, but you are rich. And he also said he knew the slander the lies that were spoken against them. For Philadelphia, the second church that we're talking about, he said that he knew that, that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Another similarity between these two churches is that Jesus used the term synagogue of Satan. Wow, that's a pretty powerful term synagogue of Satan. He used that term to refer to the Jews where they each lived. He didn't use that in the other five, just these two. And he also adds, which they say they're Jews, but they're not. And finally, a similarity between these two is a reward is given to those who conquer or overcome. For those in Smyrna, the reward's going to be a crown of life. For those in Philadelphia, that reward will essentially be citizenship. Ways of knowing that they have a home with Jesus. He communicates this to Philadelphia by using three phrases. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will you leave it. 
I will write you, I will write on you, my God's name, the name of his city and my new name. So maybe to us, those words that Jesus uses to Philadelphia don't mean a lot, but if you'd been excommunicated, if you'd been kicked out, if you felt like you had no home, no citizenship anywhere, those words would have been so valuable. They'd have hit you in your heart. They'd have meant something. Now, as short as these letters are, Jesus communicates some other things specific to each church that we're going to go through. For Smyrna, he identifies himself as the first and the last. In Isaiah 44, 6, God says, I am the first and the last. So by saying that, he's saying he's God. And that he's also sovereign over everything between the beginning of time and the end of time. Everything in between, he's sovereign over, including over everything happening to them. He also says he was dead and he's alive. So he was making sure there's only one person who was dead and is now alive. So they knew who was speaking here. He may have also said it to encourage them because they may be facing death. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Fear not. Boy, how many times have we heard that? When Jesus is born, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. I think the Lord is trying to tell us something, is he? Don't be afraid. Seems like he's always telling us that. What Jesus said deserves particular attention because we know about 50 to 80 years later, Polycarp, who became the Bishop of Smyrna, he became famous because he was killed for his faith. They tried to burn him at the stake, and that didn't work, so then they killed him with a dagger. Finally, Jesus says that they will suffer tribulation for 10 days. The term 10 days is also in Daniel 1.12. That's the only other place that's used, and it says where Daniel says, please test your servant for 10 days. Because Daniel was asking, hey, we, please, we don't want to eat the unclean royal food from the Babylonian court. We want to eat vegetables and things that will be clean for our religion. And so the 10 days here that Jesus is using is probably not a literal 10 days, it's rather a limited period of time, not a permanent situation. So that's what Jesus is trying to tell them is that, hey, this is not permanent. This is not forever. Hang in there. Hang in there. You can do it. Now, what makes the letter to Philadelphia longer than the letter to Smyrna is probably several specific things that he told his disciples in Philadelphia. He tells them that he has the key of David. The key of David. It probably doesn't look like this. In fact, it says that uh, in Isaiah 22, 22, it speaks of Eliakim. This is the only other time this term is also used in the Bible. Eliakim, who once ruled over Israel, it says about him, I will place on Eliakim's shoulder the key to the house of David. It probably doesn't look like my keys, but get that picture. It's placed on his shoulder. And then it says, what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts... No one can open. 
Now, by Jesus saying he has the key of David, he is saying he alone determines who gets to dwell in God's kingdom. Not the Jews who rule the synagogue in, in Philadelphia. Not the Jews who kicked you out and said you have no part in God. Don't listen to them. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who determines who's right with God, not them. Again, how comforting that would be after they've been kicked out. He tells the Philadelphian church that they've been given an open door. Now, what's an open door? It could be a continuation of what we just talked about with the key of David and the opening and the shutting, that only Jesus does that. However, the term open door is also used numerous times in the New Testament to refer to an opportunity to share Jesus in a particular area. So it's more likely that Jesus was telling them that because of their faithfulness in sharing Jesus where they were at, even in spite of their circumstances, they were now going to be given an even greater opportunity to share Jesus. Almost like, hey, you've done good, you're getting a promotion. I've heard people speculate that this open door refers to churches planted elsewhere in Asia by that church in Philadelphia. Because they were loaded on, located on an important highway that went to the rest of Asia. That's possible, that's speculation, and it's probably true. But the thing I want to focus on here is an important Christian principle. If you're faithful with little, you'll be given more. And that's what appears to be happening here in Philadelphia. They had been faithful, not denying the name of Jesus in their circumstances, so they were given an open door for more opportunities to share even more. Now, perhaps that open door is something that only God could do, a divine intervention to cause the Jews that had been per persecuting them to finally listen to the gospel. Wow, can you imagine that? You're being persecuted by these people, and the open door Jesus gives you is now to win them to him. And I suggest that that's probably what happened because uh, Jesus then tells the people of Philadelphia that the Jews are going to come and worship at their feet. Now, that doesn't mean coming and bowing down and worshiping the Christians. What that means is that they're going to come and worship God, but at the feet of the Christians, meaning that the Christians had something with them getting there to where they were going to truly worship God now. So they, what that means is that they were going to be able to win to Jesus those who are persecuting them. It's interesting, here's a twist, that in, in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that the Gentiles in the end times were going to come and worship at the feet of the Jews. So now here in Revelation, Jesus is turning that and telling the Christians that the Jews were going to come and worship at their feet. So that's why I really think this open door was meant to say those people who are persecuting you, who are hurting you, you're going to win them to me. Another specific thing about Philadelphia is that Jesus said that they will be kept from the hour of trial coming on the whole world. 
Now, I think this has to refer to spiritual persecution rather than physical, or I'm sorry, physical, spiritual protection rather than physical protection. And the reason, I wish it was physical protection that, you know, hey, well, everything that's happening in the world is not going to affect you. You're going to live life, have no problem. But that's probably not what happened because 13 people from Philadelphia, there's text outside the Bible that says that 13 people from Philadelphia were also killed when Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was killed. So that's probably not what Jesus was meaning. He was probably meaning uh, a spiritual protection. And it's because Jesus used those same that words, the same phrase in John 17, 5, when he prayed, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, protect them from the evil one. So that's probably the, the protection that Jesus is talking about here. So, and then finally, the last thing we want to say about the Church of Philadelphia that was specific to them was he warned them, don't let anyone take your crown. Don't let anyone take your crown. This leads us to believe that Philadelphia had already gone through tribulation and had been found faithful and been given the crown of life. But the crown through persecution could be taken from them if they let someone take it. They had to hold on to it and keep it. They had to guard it. As I was thinking about this and how they were told to guard their crown and let anyone take it, the mental picture of my mind of Esau came to my mind. You remember the story of Esau when he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew? When Jacob says he won't give him any stew until Esau first sells him his birthright, Esau replies, Look, I'm about to die of hunger. What good is my birthright to me? And so he sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. It was like he played the TV game show, Let's make a deal. Hey, Esau, the time... Curtain number one is your birthright and all the blessings with that. And behind curtain number two is a bowl of stew. And Esau thinks about it for a minute. I'll take curtain number two, the bowl of stew. Yay! In the same way, the Philadelphian saints could have become tired of suffering. They could have been tired of being treated so poorly and kicked out and being poor and not having what everybody else had, not having that normal life that everybody else gets to have. And they could have decided to give up the crown of life and play, let's make a deal, and give up that crown of life, that precious crown of life for a normal life. And Satan would have gladly made the trade. And hopefully that never happened. But that is what Jesus is warning them about. And I mention that here because I've been tempted at times to play let's make a deal. To desire a, a normal life. Like 
everybody else gets to do. To trade in every Sunday morning at church and all that time that I spend in prayer for other people and all that time reading the same Bible over and over again. The nights at house church, the tithe checks over the years that I've written, the school tuition that I paid to send my kids to a Christian school, the time serving other people, to trade all that for a normal life where I can kick back and enjoy what everybody else gets to enjoy. Fortunately, I see those things I just talked about as blessings through which God has blessed me tremendously. But beware, the devil is already, always lurking around the corner saying, hey, you want to make a deal? Guard your hearts. Be aware of those thoughts when they come so that your crown is not taken from you. Okay, so we've analyzed this. We've gone deep, as many of you like to say, into this, in the text. We've looked at these um, very closely at these two churches. So what are we all to do with that information here? Since this is God's word for our lives, how should we obey it? How can we apply it? We've already talked about one of those, avoid playing let's make a deal with the devil. But as I look at this text, I see a simple statement that we can take away from this. Be a faithful witness. That's essentially what Jesus was telling both the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia. They were faithful witnesses, and he called them faithful witnesses. But if you're like me, I need help to understand, okay, so what's a faithful witness look like for me here today? It's someone who obeys Jesus' commands. You know, I've only learned about what a Discovery Bible study is, or a DBS as we call it, since coming here to Central Christian about two years ago. But since learning about Discovery Bible Study and taking training on them and then training others on them, there is one word that seems to be on almost every single page of the Bible. It jumps out at me. It's there all, the, all over the place. And it's the word obey. There used to be a time when I had a problem with the word obey. Oh, obey? I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. But it's all over the scripture. Here, there's verses that say, uh, Matthew 7, 24. And depending upon what translation you have, it'll be the word obey, or keep, or heed, or do. But you'll see that throughout the scripture. Everyone who hears these things I say and obeys them is like a wise man. The wise man built his house on a rock. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. For this is the love of God, that we keep 
his commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. You see those verses we read all the time and all the other verses throughout the scripture. Those words, obey, keep, do, heed, are everywhere. So a faithful witness is first someone who obeys. And I'm sorry if you have a problem with that word obey, and it's probably not a politically correct word today. Because we're being trained to do what's best in our own eyes. And yes, if someone's a mean tyrant, obeying is very difficult. But we don't have a mean tyrant for a savior. We have someone who's looking out for what's good for us. Maybe not everything good in this life, but when you consider our, our life in heaven, he wants what's best for us. So I can trust him. I can obey him. That old hymn, we sang a couple old hymns today. There's an old hymn, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So a faithful witness is first someone who obeys. That's where the word faithful comes in. We're reliable. We're faithful. We obey even when there is a cost to obeying. It's easy to obey when there's no cost. But when there's a cost, will we be faithful and obey or will we avoid the cost? But then there's a second, and that's to be a witness to be a witness. And that's where faithful witness comes from. To be a witness, you must share, right? Like a witness is in court, they testify what they saw, what they heard. That's what Jesus is asking us to do, to be a witness. To share what we've seen and heard from him. So a faithful witness is not is someone who not only obeys, but also shares Jesus. But what exactly does share Jesus mean? Wear a t-shirt? I'm going to suggest to you it means, from our text, don't deny his name. Now, Jesus praised the Philadelphians because they had not denied his name. So obviously... The Philadelphians didn't deny following Jesus if somebody asked them about it. But I think there was much more to it than that. Don't you think we deny Jesus when we're silent about him? When we don't share him with our friends, co-workers, and others we come into contact with regularly? Let me ask you a question. If you're married... Do those around you know it? I think so. If you're a Chiefs fan, a Broncos fan, or a Cowboys fan, do those around you know it? Yeah, I think so. We got to see some footage a couple weeks ago of one of our pastors here uh, being very vocal about his Chiefs love for Chiefs. So if Jesus is the most important thing in your life, 
Do those around you know that? Yes, you can deny Jesus by being silent about him. And when we share, do not share obnoxiously, but be led by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have to be the only thing we ever talk about. But I am suggesting that we should be looking for opportunities to share. We should be ready to share our faith with those around us. One of the many things that I really like about doing a Discovery Bible study is that if they're done right, is that they help teach obedience to Jesus. Seen these cards? They're at Info Central if you don't have one. The last two cards on that DBS, uh, the last two questions on the DBS card are what should you do in response to this passage? And the next one is who who are you going to share this passage with? And then it says, I will. It's asking you, okay, I will do, okay, I'm going to clean my room, I'm going to apologize, or I'm going to take my turn doing this. Something, something specific, I will. And then I will share, I will share with Bob or a coworker or a friend of mine. Those two questions I've heard people say are what makes or what doesn't make a disciple, whether they obey and share. That makes the difference between someone who claims to follow Jesus and a disciple. The second question is equally important because we can't obey Jesus' final command, the Great Commission, without sharing Jesus. So if you lead a Discovery Bible study, please avoid the temptation to skip those last two questions. It may... they. They make me uncomfortable every week when I've got to answer them. But did Jesus come to make us comfortable or to make us holy? He often makes us uncomfortable to make us holy. And would rather us be uncomfortable than disobedient to him and silent about him. So to be a faithful witness, we must also overcome and conquer. Have you noticed that every one of the seven letters of the, to the churches has a promise from Jesus in it? To him who overcomes. He says that all the time. To him who overcomes. I will, and then he fills it in with words that are specific to that church. So what is to be overcome and conquered? Do you all need a seventh inning stretch? Everybody Good. Okay, good. Thank you. All right. I have to sit out there, too, and if I've been up late, you know, praying, all that kind of stuff, sometimes in the dark and the setting, it, you know, you get a little tired. So I understand. So hang in there. We're almost done. So, so what is to be overcome and conquered? Well, we talked about it earlier. Fear. Fear that when you're sharing with somebody and you say the word Jesus, they're going to pull out a bazooka and machine guns and all this stuff. That's the thoughts that hit us sometimes. Fear. That's what Jesus told the church at Smyrna. He said, Don't, do not fear. And then in Matthew 10, 28 through 33, this is one of my favorite verses on fear. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows everything about you. He's there with you. He knows everything happening. So fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Fear can keep us from obeying and sharing Jesus, from being a faithful witness. And Jesus is encouraging us to overcome that fear and obey and share regardless. Other things he wants us to overcome and conquer are persecution. Persecution and sharing often go, sharing Christ are often go together. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not maybe, will be persecuted. But if our goal is to, in life is more to live a good and comfortable life than to share Jesus, enjoy all of God's blessings after all, right? If that's our goal rather than to obey and share Jesus, then we probably won't obey and share Jesus with others, if at all. And then another thing to overcome is returning evil for evil. Because when we're persecuted, what do we want to do? We want to push back. And this is hard for me. And I imagine hard for all Americans. We're raised. Hey, somebody pushes you, you push them back. Stand up for yourself. But Jesus tells us that we must overcome the desire to take vengeance against those who persecute us. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Romans 12.19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is his or mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then Romans 12.21 says it very well, and the language we're reading in, in Revelations here, Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. So something else to overcome, though, that's similar to persecution, is suffering. I look at persecution as those things that others cause you because you're obedient to Christ. Suffering are all those things that happen to you, not because of others, but just because you're being obedient. For example, doing without doing without money, food, whatever, because you gave away what you had to someone else. Lack of sleep, because you stayed up late to tell someone about Jesus. Or you were interceding for somebody in prayer, for your neighbors, perhaps. Suffering hunger, because you're fasting. No one else did that to you. You're incurring that because of you following Christ. An acronym I've recently become acquainted with that leads to a lot of suffering is W-I-G-T, WIGT. What's it going to take? You know, we often respond to Jesus' call in our life by saying, hmm, based on my available time and money and energy, I can give this to serving the Lord. 
And with that approach, we're giving from our excess, and Jesus gets the leftovers, whatever we got left. And that's probably the limit of what we will do for God. W-I-G-T, or WIGT, looks at serving God from the exact opposite direction. Looking at the Great Commission and all that Jesus has told us to do, and reaching every people group for Christ, what's it going to take? Causes the disciple to ask him or herself, what's it going to take for me to obey what Jesus is telling me to do? What's it going to take? And what we have left over are probably very far apart in our lives. One is giving from our excess, and the other is giving from our need. Remember the widow with the two mites that Jesus praised because she didn't give out of her surplus. She gave out of her need. Disciples of Jesus inflict suffering on themselves in order to make the sacrifices of their time, money, and energy to do what it takes to obey Jesus. We do this because we love him. You do great things you go to great lengths to serve those you love. In overcoming fear, persecution, returning evil for evil and suffering, we become God's exhibit A. You know from the TV law series, you know, those TV series with law, you always see the attorney go up, Your Honor, I submit exhibit A. Well, going through all these things, we become God's exhibit A. And this is what I mean by that. C.S. Lewis, I think, even referred to this as well once in one of his books. I believe when Judgment Day comes and all the universe is watching God judge the devil and all the angels that rebelled against God, God's going to point to us. And he's going to say something to the devil and his angels like, look at all of them. They never have seen me. They've just been told about me. And yet they believe. And they even lay down their lives for me. They're powerless. They can't change their form or look like anything else. They can't change the color of their hair even naturally. They're powerless in the spiritual realm. Yet they believed how good I am, how righteous, how true, and how holy even in the midst of suffering, even when I didn't heal them, nor keep them from death, they would not deny me. Unlike you, devil and the angels, they were faithful. Even if they were born with crippling diseases, or they didn't live a long natural life, even if in pain from natural things, even when they weren't kept safe, from dictatorships who insisted that they not worship me. They were faithful. They not only believed in me, they were suffered in order to obey me and share my gospel even unto death. So now that you know that you're exhibit A, do you understand why you're hated so much by the devil and his angels and all those that align with him. When they see us, they see Jesus and the goodness and wisdom of God. 
But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. To overcome all these things and our enemy and everything that's resisting us, we must stick close to Jesus and keep our eyes on him and follow his examples. We must keep our eyes on him no matter what. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3 speaks to this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. And finally, we must not forget that there is a great reward for those who overcome unto the end. The early disciples rejoiced when they were persecuted for obeying and sharing Jesus. In fact, Paul says that it is a blessing given to us to suffer for his sake. In Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you, gifted. I believe that word is kairos, gifted. Been give, gifted to us to suffer for Christ's sake. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, why would he consider suffering and persecution a blessing given to us? Because for Paul, through those things, he experienced Jesus' presence. And I don't know about you, when I've experienced Jesus' presence, I want nothing but Jesus' presence. And I'll do whatever it takes to get Jesus' presence. But whatever, Paul says, Philippians, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what we've read in our text today, we need to close here. What we've read in our text today about the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia is that they did suffer harm and suffer greatly and even death to obey and share Jesus. And Jesus praised them for it. He didn't say, oh, you didn't have to do that. You know, you could have smudged a little bit and gotten by. No, he praised them for being faithful. He probably had them in mind when he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil. They lie and slander about you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so persecuted they prophets who were before you. Remember how Jesus said to the church of Smyrna, I know your poverty, but you are rich. This is why he said they were rich. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is Jesus himself. He is the prize to hold on to at the loss of everything else. Amen? So in closing, I want to encourage you. Your circumstances may be rough. You may often find yourself thinking, ah, if only I was like this person over here, then I could do great things for God. Oh, if my health was better. If only I had gone to college. 
Or if only I had married someone else who, who, who loved the Lord. If only I wasn't confined to this wheelchair. But like Jesus said to the church of Smyrna, you may feel you're poor, but you are rich. If you haven't denied his name, but you hold on to his name, and you obey and share him, or maybe you haven't in the past, but from this day forward you do, you are rich. And you put to shame the principalities and powers of this world when you are his faithful witnesses. And you can sing loudly the fourth verse of this closing song we're going to sing. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus, not anybody else, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or he calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'm standing. On the other hand, if you haven't been a faithful witness, today's the day to change that. Come forward and let us pray with you to change that and give you the next steps to being a faithful witness. Would the pastors and prayer team come forward? So as we close, in Christ alone, my hope is built. Rejoice if you've been a faithful witness and Jesus knows your struggle and you are rich. Amen.